Uh, we'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 20, uh, the first reading, Old Testament reading that was read to us just now. Uh, let us pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for those uh, who are still trying to get in. Uh, we pray that they will be able to get in in time. Uh, we pray for us now that we will uh, still our hearts, we will concentrate. Uh, that once again, we will be built up by your words. Uh, they will may continue as those uh, who are faithful uh, servants of yours, seeking to be wise in living up um, the life you have given us. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I ask you, uh, would you prefer to be a leader uh, or a team player when you're working as a team? I guess different of you will answer differently. Uh, some of you really enjoy being a leader, enjoying coming up with direction uh, for others to follow. Uh, others will much prefer not to have their pressure, uh, prefer to be a team player, uh, utilizing your gifts to serve the common goal. Uh, now in the church context, uh, when we as Christians come together to serve the church, uh, there will be those who serve in leading, there will be those who serve as team players. Uh, but whether it's leading or working in, in a team, uh, both need to strive for the same purpose. Both need to strive for the same goal of advancing God's kingdom. Uh, and if they do that, many good fruits will be produced. Uh, but if either one of those roles uh, fail to see the common purpose, uh, things can go very wrong. Uh, leaders who are not aligned with God's will is a big problem for the members. And members who are not aligned uh, with God's plan are the big frustration for their leaders. And so here in 2 Samuel 20, uh, we see one negative example and one positive example uh, in this issue. First, we have Joab. Joab is supposed to be a follower of King David, but he acted as if he is the leader, supposing that he knows better than David. In fact, Joab tried to go even above God. Uh, in the salvation history that we see in 2 Samuel, uh, we see all throughout that what Joab seeks to advance is not God's kingdom, but, his own, but, it is, but is his own kingdom. Not God's kingdom, but his own kingdom. So that was a negative example. Uh, but we also have a positive example of the wise woman from the city of Ever. Uh, this wise woman is a follower of God. She understands God's plan and she uses her wisdom to fulfill it. Uh, so from the example given to us in our passage today, whether our role is to serve as leading or team player, may we learn to be a faithful and wise member uh, in God's kingdom. So we come to the first scene in 2 Samuel 20. And we see that the first scene picks up from the previous development. Uh, last week, we've seen in chapter 19 that after David had defeated the rebellion of Absalom, there was a tussle, a tussle between the ten tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah. The ten tribes of Israel, they were the first to say, let's bring David back as king. But then David said, no, Judah, the tribe of Judah should be the one to bring him back over from the Jordan River. So in the end, King David was brought back by the elders of Judah. And although the ten tribes complained fiercely, the final words we see in chapter 19 was that the words of the men of Judah were harsher. Uh, in one sense, uh, Judah had won the shouting match. 
uh, because there was this tussle between the ten tribes on Judah, it is because of this development. Sheba, the son of Bikri, sees an opportunity to steal the kingdom away from David's hand. He seizes upon the dissatisfaction of the Israel tribes. And he blew the trumpet and he said in verse 1, uh, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance from him. Everyone stop following him and go back to your tents. And the next verse showed that Sheba was successful in this revolt, at least in the very beginning. All the men of Israel we see in verse 2 stopped following David and turned to Sheba. However, one tribe remained steadfast to their king, and that is the man of Judah. So the first point of the sermon, the chosen and the faithful one, Judah. Uh, what do you make of this quick desertion of the men of Israel? What do you think about them following Sheba so easily? Maybe some of you might say that, well, it is reasonable, it is justifiable, because David didn't favor them. David favored Judah instead. Maybe one of, some of you will say that. Uh, but some of you will also say, no, this is truly wrong. No matter what, David has been a good king to all the tribes. Uh, this is a clear act of betrayal. Uh, by the ten tribes of Israel. These people are fickle-minded. Previously, they want to fight to bring David back. Now, easily, they follow Sheba. Well, it is undeniable uh, that the men of Israel were acting in rebellion against a good and many times righteous king. Uh, but I can't help but notice a deeper theological truth uh, in the way this has happened. You see, it is true that King David clearly favored the men of Judah more. Even though it was the ten tribes who initiated, he clearly chose Judah. So he chose the ten tribes. He chose Judah out of the many tribes. And as we step back, and we, as we take a step back to see the bigger picture, we see that it was actually God who chose the tribe of Judah. He chose a man from the tribe of Judah to be the king, which is King David. And we know that ultimately, God's choice is for our Lord Jesus Christ to come from this same tribe. So the way I see this development is that Israel did not manage to stay faithful to King David because David has first chosen Judah or God has first chosen Judah to be the tribe. Unless you think that I'm overreading over a small chunk of the text. Uh, you see, this is God's consistent plan all throughout the Old Testament history. Uh, Israel only temporarily uh, kind of come under King David and King Solomon reign. Very quickly, after the King Solomon reign, under King Rehoboam, the Israel tribes seceded again. All this until the end of the Old Testament history. Until when we come to Jesus in the beginning of 1st century AD, the gospel first come to Judah, not to the other ten tribes. Then only on, later on, in Acts. It goes to Samaria and to all the other nations. So I, I think that in chapter, in chapter 20 here, this is a gradual development of the election of Judah by God. And I think this is something for us to think about. Uh, those uh, who are chosen by God tend to choose rightly, to choose God to lead them. You see, this is true of us mankind as well. Uh, we, when we see that the Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, they are very fickle-minded. 
they always tend to choose wrongly. They tend not to choose David when they matter most. It is the same with us. So often when we humanity, when we are left on our own, when we are left outside of God's gracious election, we tend to choose the wrong leaders to follow. Uh, I'm not talking about casting the wrong votes for the wrong political party. Uh, I'm talking about us choosing to worship false gods instead. Choosing to worship ourselves as God instead. Choosing the things that attract us now, make us feel good, that we think is right for us. But ultimately, it is so disastrous and destructive for us. We truly need God's gracious election. Only when He freely chooses us out of His wonderful love, sending His Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, then we are able to choose Jesus to rightly follow Him. Uh, this doctrine of God's election or so-called predestination of those who will be saved is a cherished biblical teaching. It is a distinctive feature of reform and evangelical teaching. Uh, we should emphasize this doctrine of election because its ultimate aim is for us not to trust in our own wisdom, not to trust in our own methods, but to trust in God and the way He works out salvation among His people. Uh, this doctrine forces us to always focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is, is God's only ordained method to work out his salvation. Uh, one final word on the doctrine of election. Uh, it does not mean that we have to guess whether God has elected us. You know, plug the pedal, God choose me, God choose me not, God choose me, God. No, we do not have to guess God's election. Uh, and we can never blame God and say, Okay, he never chose me, so I will not believe. It's not like that. God's election never takes away our own responsibility. We all have a real will under God's sovereignty. God makes it clear to us, and we know that we can truly feel our own sinfulness with our real will. And so we need to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ in order for sins to be forgiven. We need to do that actively. And if you choose not to trust in the gospel, we are to be responsible for that sinfulness. Uh, but, but pray to God. Pray to God that He will have mercy on all of us in His goodness. That our hearts will continually be softened. That we continue to trust in His gracious love. Now we return to the events that was recorded for us in the Bible. Uh, now that Sheba has succeeded, uh, has, uh, has succeeded in starting another revolt, David needs to deal with it. So in verse 4, he asks Amasa to recruit an army out of the men of Judah to fight Sheba. Now we know previously that it was David's intention to replace Joab as a commander of the army. We see in chapter 19, verse 13, he said to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. We also know why David is replacing Joab. Because he could not trust Joab anymore. Uh, Joab is an insubordinate follower. He killed Absalom violently, despite the clear instruction from David. So David gave his new commander, Amasa, giving his first task, a three-day deadline to recruit the army. Amasa goes as he was told, but he failed. He could not return in time 
before the end of three days. Maybe you will think, Haiya, so lousy one is Amasa. Call people only, ma. why take so long? So useless one. Maybe Amasa is really an incompetent leader. Or maybe he could make with a very strong resistance. Because previously he was fighting for Absalom, now he's fighting for David. Maybe he met resistance because of that. Whether the task is really difficult or whether Amasa is really incompetent, uh, we can only guess. Uh, the author of 2 Samuel did not reveal to us clearly. Uh, what he wanted to tell us is that because of this delay, once again there is an opening, there is a window of opportunity for bad things to happen again. David cannot afford for it to be delayed because as each passing day passes, Sheba's army might grow bigger. So he needs a quick plan B. So now he calls Abishai. Instead of waiting for the men of Judah, big numbers, he calls his own smaller palace army, palace guard, to hunt down Sheba. And he asks Abishai to do it. Notice that he once again deliberately overlooked Joab. Isn't it? He didn't choose Joab, who was the, who was the commander beforehand, but he asked Abishai instead to lead the palace army. But despite David's deliberate plan, verse 7 says what? Verse 7 says that Joab and his men still went along. In the end, Joab still became the main character in this episode. This should not surprise us, isn't it? Who follow 2 Samuel closely. This is who Joab is. Joab will never stand around and be bullied. He will never stand there and be replaced by Amasa. He always gets his ways. The point two of the sermon, Joab, the one who always get his own way. And so when Joab leading Abisha and his men to go chase after Sheba, they met Amasa. And guess what happens? Joab pretends to be friendly with Amasa, grabbing his hand, his, his beard with his right hand. That shows that no hostility because right hand is where I hold the weapon, but then he hides the weapon on the left hand. And then he, as he pretends to be friendly, he one strike, just one strike, and he kills Amasa on the spot. Why did Joab kill Amasa? Well, it's simple, because he did not want Amasa to replace him as a commander. His position is threatened by Amasa. And this is not the first time that Joab acted for his own selfish interests in a despicable way. Previously, when he killed Absalom, most likely, it was also for his own personal vengeance. There's a very curious verse back in chapter 17, in verse 25. Now, Absalom has set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Isn't it interesting? Absalom has set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. What I'm thinking that what is happening behind the scene is that it is quite likely that Joab would have happily supported Absalom if Absalom had made him the commander of the army. But instead, he chose Amasa. And so when David instructed Joab to spare Absalom's life, he couldn't care less. It's payback time. So we see throughout the events in 2 Samuel that Joab is a very determined and resolute person. Yes, he does some good things here and there. Uh, we see that he fought valiantly for David to help David secure his kingdom. But with his resoluteness, he also become accomplice 
in the murder of Uriah. Remember? And remember, he was also the one who persuaded David in bringing Absalom back. He used a wise woman to convince David to bring back Absalom because he knew that David loved Absalom. He wants to gain David's trust. He's a very resolute, determined person. He'll do the good things, the bad things, whatever thing for David. But he will also go against David if he brings more benefit for himself. He's happy to support David if he suits him. He's happy to go against David if he suits him better. So Joab's final downfall, if you go forward to 1 King 1, is when he supports Adonijah, Adonijah instead of Solomon. He go against David's back, behind David's back, go against David's wishes in passing the throne to Solomon. And when he supports Adonijah, in the end, that was uh, the end of his life. So what is my conclusion of this character? Joab is actually building his own kingdom all the time. It may seem that he's helping God's kingdom, but there's just a side point. Sometimes he may be a good assistant under David. He only helped David when he served his own objectives of gaining position, gaining reward under God's kingdom. But he quickly go against David if there's more benefit. You see, it's very, it's very amazing. Second Samuel is all about the kingdom of David, isn't it? It's all about how God used David to bring his kingdom to save the people of Israel. But in the midst of this bigger, more important plan, the name Joab always come up. In the midst of this God's salvation plan, you have one man, Joab, who doesn't care about God's kingdom. He only cares for his own selfish interests, his own small empire. You see, that is a very ungodly thing to do, isn't it? And the more shocking truth is that even now in our churches, it can also happen that there's a Joab in our midst. Uh, there are those in the church who claim that they are doing things for God, but many times they are just trying to push their own agenda. They could well support the leaders uh, when the leader's decision is aligned with their own interests. But when the leaders decide something against their will, against their strong preference, they oppose strongly. They might not, they, they might not even hesitate to sabotage the church, sabotage the growth of the gospel if it means achieving their own objective. May God have mercy on these people, that he will call them to repentance, call them to always put the growth of the gospel first, even above their own agenda, their own ambition. But friends, even if there's a joy in our church, we can have the confidence that God's plan will not be drafted. God will still grow his church. God will still bring salvation to more people. And God will do that by raising a lot more godly servants who will defend his church and do his work. And I believe many of you are in this category, even though I speak quite sternly before that. Instead of being a Joab, many of you probably will strive to be an Abishai. Abishai is very different from Joab if you analyze this character. Of course, Abishai is far from perfect. We don't see him actively object to the murder of Amasa. And if you go back earlier, he was twice rebuked by David for wanting to put to death Shimei. He was rebuked by David for being a violent man. 
But you see, ultimately, Abishai submit to David's rebuke. And more importantly, Abishai did not seek to make a name for himself. You see, like Joab, Abishai was there for all the important missions, helping David to secure his kingdom. But unlike Joab, he never tried to undermine David. Uh, when you're at home today in your Bible phone app, try to do a word search on Joab and Abishai. You see very two different characters. Joab is building his own kingdom, but Abishai was a faithful servant in David's kingdom. Uh, and we all should try to be in a, like Abishai, willing to listen to God's rebuke and seeking to play our part in the advancing of God's kingdom. And we should be joyful that God seeks fit to use us uh, for this great glory. Now, not only can we be a faithful servant like Abishai, uh, we, can even, we can also learn to be wise as well as being faithful, like the woman in the next episode. Point three, uh, a wise woman acting in peace. Starting in verse 14, we see that Sheba and all those who follow him finally come to the city of Eber to seek protection against the chasing men of Joab. Then Joab and his men besieged the city, and they began to batter the wall to throw it down. At this moment, a wise woman calls from the city wall to speak to Joab. And as we read, interestingly, the Joab who never listens to anyone listens attentively to the wise woman. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's like Donald Trump finally listened to the Congress, or Mahadev finally listens to his cabinet. So the wise woman tells Joab not to destroy the whole city along with the people inside. Joab explains that he, they are only after Sheba, the son of Bikri, the guy who has lifted his hand against King David and is now hiding in the city. They will withdraw from the city if Sheba is handed over. So the wise woman goes to all her people in her wisdom they manage to capture Sheba and after cutting off his head, they throw it out to Joab. And so through the intervention of this wise woman, also acting in faithfulness and peace, notice that she said, I'm of the faithful and peaceful one. Through her wisdom in faithfulness in peace, the revolt by Sheba is suppressed without the spilling of much blood. Uh, and this resolution uh, of the rebellion of Sheba closes off a big section of the story in 2 Samuel. Uh, we see that this big section started way back in chapter 14. The rise of the Absalom rebellion, it was stopped, and then Sheba, and then it was stopped. So chapter 14 to chapter 20 is the starting and the closing of the big section. And we should notice something very interesting. The very deliberate arrangement by the author, where both in the beginning and the ending, there's an appearance of wise woman. Remember? Chapter 14, there's a wise woman. Chapter 20, there's a wise woman. It's not a coincidence. Now, I think it's the author's intention to highlight the display of wisdom combined with faithfulness and peacefulness. In contrast to the lack of these three virtues in Joab as well as in David. Wisdom, peacefulness, and faithfulness is very needed. But often it's lacking in David and more importantly in Joab. David tried his best to rule wisely. But at various times we see his decision was unsound, was wrong at some times. Joab was obviously too wise in his own eyes. 
He was seriously lacking in faithfulness and peacefulness. So the action of the wise woman in chapter 20 was a prime example of how to be faithful to God's plan of salvation, as well as being wise and peaceful in executing it. See, the rebellion of Sheba must be stopped. It is the will of God. So the wise woman executed the will of God without wasting innocent lives, without the violent confrontation of the two armies. And so in the, this third point, I just want to touch a little bit about how we can apply wisdom in our serving together in church context. How we can use wisdom to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, my guess is that for many of us here, uh, we are very familiar with two categories, truth and love. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. Well, we will do very well if we keep striving for these two categories. We must have truth, we must have love. But I want to say that that is not enough. We should add another category, which is to add wisdom. How can we be more wise in speaking the truth in love? I'll give a very concrete example to illustrate the principle. As a pastor, I often try to train others to be better at leading Bible study or to give a sermon. Uh, so when I give feedback, I have to speak the truth first. I have to speak the truth whether the Bible study or the sermon uh, has shown God's truth correctly. Uh, but I also have to do it in love, uh, with gentleness, uh, with a smiley face, not with a stern face, which is quite hard for me uh, because my natural thinking expression is like, like angry face to others, but I wasn't angry. I was just thinking. So I try hard to smile as I try now uh, to show love as I teach the truth. Uh, but on top of truth and love, I also need a lot of wisdom in giving feedback. You see, it is always wise to give the positive feedback, then only the constructive feedback, isn't it? Uh, if you have that wisdom, it will amplify the love, the gentleness even more. And to help someone to get the truth correctly, you need wisdom to make it as specific and as detailed as you can. You cannot just say, okay, this truth is not good enough. Well, it's not good, I also know, but how to make it better? In order to make things better, to give solutions and not just pointing out the problem, you need a lot of wisdom. You need to know exactly how you should do it yourself. A lot of times, giving principle is good, but not wise enough. We need wisdom to know what kind of principle to apply in what situation uh, and what principle in, in different degrees to apply in each case. I can go on and on. But what I want to emphasize is that speaking the truth in love is very important. We should start with that. But we also should add a lot more wisdom. Maybe I can put it this way. We are to be constant in seeking to be faithful and to be loving. Isn't it? Uh, truth and love always remain the same. It shouldn't change. But we can grow in wisdom. We can have more wisdom, different kind of wisdom, as we seek to amplify, exemplify this truth and love. And that is hard, my friends. You need to think how wisdom should be applied in each circumstances. You can only know when you are in it and seeking to put your wisdom to do that. Finally, we come to the final few verses. Uh, we see in verses 23 to 26, uh, a list of those key people, uh, key positions in David's kingdom. Uh, we look at the PowerPoint, we look at the, uh, the army commander, the secretary, the priest, etc. Again, 
uh, this summary here is a closing off of a big section, all the way from chapter 8. A similar list appears at the end of chapter 8. When the first list appears, there is also commander, secretary, priest. It concludes the establishment of a good kingdom under David. By the end of chapter 8, finally, a good kingdom is established under David. But the kingdom falls between chapter 11 and chapter 18, mainly because of the sins of David. And then the, king, the kingdom was restored to David by the end of chapter 20. Although the kingdom was restored to David, it was a kingdom marked, it was a kingdom marked with sins, marked with foolish decisions of various people. But we know that the restoration of David's kingdom at this point uh, is a progressive salvation plan that will ultimately climax in the coming of Jesus and his perfect kingdom, where he will finally be filled with righteousness, mercy, and wisdom. It is because that the kingdom has indeed come among us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we can summarize this in the last points like that, because of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that we can remain faithful to God, having been chosen by him and called by him through the gospel, that we should defend the church against the joy in our midst, be a faithful Abishai instead, and more than faithful, we seek to grow in wisdom as we live out truth and love. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your righteousness, for your mercy. I uh, pray that we'll always hold on to that, we'll respond to it, we'll seek to be faithful to you, uh, seek to play our part in God's kingdom as we serve together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And help us, Father, as we do so, that we'll also add a lot more wisdom as we do it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.